Well, about midweek, I finished reading a book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. The book starts like this. The average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, and insultingly short. Assuming you live to be 80, you'll have had about 4,000 weeks. Sobering measurement. The first few chapters describe the brevity of life as the defining human problem. And there are sobering chapters. Uh, I promise it'll twist you up a bit if you read them and they're worth reading. It challenges sort of the typical time management techniques that we've all used and our obsession with time and productivity and our failure to take the reality of death into account. In fact, he argues, as many writers before him, uh, that our busyness is a way to avoid thinking about death altogether. Uh, and while the idea of thinking about it is morbid, he writes, what's really morbid is avoidance and denial. And I don't disagree. Death is a harsh reality, and despite its certainty, it's astonishing how disinterested we all are in dying or even thinking about it. Because of other factors, we're at a disadvantage than previous generations. And one writer makes this point. Modern culture, then, is the worst in history at preparing its members for the only inevitability, death. Uh, and it's true. Modern medicine has got us and technology has got us, has death so far out of our minds and the possibility of living longer and longer, just, just death just sort of slips away. And we write books now like this called How Not to Die, which I picked up a couple of weeks ago, read the introduction. It's basically a book about nutrition and how to avoid dying from like 12 different, maybe 13 or 14 different diseases each chapter. And there are some comical things in it. You'll die before you finish it, I promise. <laughs> <clears throat> I wish I could tell you that Berkman in 4,000 weeks had some revolutionary approach to time management in light of our mortality or some fresh way to think about meaning, you know, but he doesn't. There's no answer. In fact, about midway through the book, he says this, accept the lack of any solution because that is the solution. Well, now he had me angry. And then you get to the end of the book, the afterword, and it's titled Beyond Hope. And I didn't know if that meant positive or negative. He literally says, and everything I'm going to say to you now until I say I'm not saying it, he says at the end of the book, there is no hope, nothing to place your faith in. Give up hope. There is none at all. Closes the book with this. The world is broken. It's equally true of your life. And your weeks are running out. So abandon hope and then Roll up your sleeves and go make the most of your limited time.
I almost, uh, I wanted to throw it through the window. Because what he's suggesting, by the way, and other things that I've read, is uh, not unlike what modern culture is saying to us. They're saying, hey, let's get out of denial, which everyone wants to be out of denial of death. But then they've moved to this place of acceptance. Uh, And I'm, again, acceptance is a little better than denial, but it's not far enough. Uh, In a book called Remember Death, which I read a couple years ago, Matthew McCullough says this, death acceptance is just as dishonest as death avoidance. And I agree. You have to act like there's meaning. You've got to roll up your sleeves like there really is meaning, even though you know that there isn't. That doesn't work. And that's what's so fascinating to me about something else I read. This has been, you know, maybe six months ago. About this small country of Bhutan. You heard about the country of Bhutan? It's uh, South Asia. It sits between India and China. It's about the size of Indiana with the population of Alaska. It's consistently ranked the happiest country in the world, year after year. And one of the key reasons is that woven into the culture, its daily routine is the consideration of their own death and mortality. Three times a day they stop and think about the fact that nothing's permanent. Morning, noon, and night. Their funerals last 21 days. And they seem to be very grateful for every day. Makes them happy. Now, there's much more I could say about this intriguing country. But here's what really got me. Is that they really don't have like a, uh, a solid view of heaven or the afterlife. They're happy just to accept. They have found happiness in the acceptance that death is the end. Uh, One writer called it the end of life magic. Somehow, acceptance magically creates some kind of meaning until you're gone. And I couldn't help but think after I read it, contemplating your life and your mortality is not unhealthy. But I keep thinking to myself, if this is the happiest country in the world, how happy would they be if they knew there was something on the other side? How happy would they be if their hope could extend past this life? First Corinthians fifteen nineteen says this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. That's pitiable. That shouldn't make anyone happy. It's pitiable. If somehow you could be connected to Christ or any spiritual guru for that matter, have any kind of philosophy and have no hope after this life, even Christ wouldn't be enough, Paul says. That. It would mean, because Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Christ didn't rise from the dead, so this is what you have. This is what you're stuck with. It would mean death wins. 
And death's victory means the loss of everything. Even meaning. Who cares how well you use your time if nothing matters in the end? This is why in verse 26 of that same chapter, Paul rightly calls death what it is. It's an enemy. It's the last enemy. It's the one that will be destroyed last. Because it's not normal. It's not natural. It's not part of the cycle of life. It's wrong. It's an intruder. And it needs to be defeated. So Christianity offers a third option. Beyond denial, beyond acceptance, Christ. Put your trust in Christ who defeated it. And that essentially means this. Believe that God acted in history out of love for the world to do what only he could do. And to understand how is to understand the gospel. To understand how he did that is to understand the gospel, the two key events that we celebrate on this weekend, Christ's death on a cross and his resurrection from the grave, and how they change everything. Those two events change everything. So I want to show you what it means to cross the line of faith. Right where you sit, if you've never done it, to come to understand and rely on what Christ has accomplished for you so that you can have hope beyond this world. To do that, I'm going to take you on a little tour. It's going to be a little bit of a whirlwind. Hold your hair back, all right? All right, here we go. Romans 10, 17. Let's start right here. Romans is the key legal book that we're going to be addressing because Paul wants to get to the bottom of the whole uh, sort of understanding of what it means that Christ died and rose again. So here's what he says in chapter 10, a key pivotal time in the book. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you're sitting out there and you go, well, I don't have faith and I don't know where it's going to come from. Let me just tell you something. Don't worry about it. You don't have to muster it up. Nobody's going to drag you across the faith line. I'm going to tell you what happens. Something happens on the inside that's mysterious. You can't control it. I can't convince you. You can't discover something that'll make it happen. It's mysterious. I love the way he does it. There's no verb in that sentence that says faith comes by hearing. It's just faith out of hearing. You hear the truth of what is being said, and something happens on the inside, and it's a God thing. It's not because you're smart or you figured something out somebody else did. That couldn't. That's not how it works. Faith is the full acceptance of what Christ has done. Somehow the truth of it comes to live inside of your heart. And it's mysterious. Fills you, overtakes you. And you feel like you can't trust anything else in the world but him. That's what it feels like when the truth of it hits you. And you have to abandon everything and rely solely on what he's done for you. I was on a Zoom call here um, uh, about four weeks ago. And there were seven guys on the line. And one of them asked sort of a newcomer on there, hey, when did you give your life to Christ? 
And this guy started, and it just became a little, we all went. Everybody took about two, two and a half minutes to explain how they came to faith. Two guys came to faith when they were, one was seven, one was eight years old. Uh, the other two were in junior high, seventh grade and eighth grade. One of them was in high school, one in college, and one of them the, was 37 years old when he gave his life to Christ. All of them, these guys are now in their 50s, some of them uh, in their 60s. And two things popped out as I heard the stories in two and a half minutes. It's true of everybody who gives their life to Christ. The first thing is, I heard what Jesus did for me. And for the first time, I had heard it before, but the first time, I, this time I heard it, and I can't explain, my heart grabbed onto its truth. I cannot explain it. That's the first testimony. The second thing that they said, every one of us could say, it. the moment I did it, every single thing in my life changed. Nothing looked the same again from that moment. Nothing looked the same again. Those two things. And I'm going to tell you, that's mysterious. I don't care how far away from faith you are. When God shows up, you're there. That's just how it works. So I want to show you what it is you need to hear so that you, so that you can put your faith in it. So that the... It, at the, real rea at the real possibility that God might grab a hold of your heart. Let me give it to you one more time. What it is Paul would say in Romans 10 because he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ. Well, Paul's already explained in nine chapters what the word of Christ is. And I want you to hear it so you know how faith comes. And if you want it, you can have it. So Romans 6.23 is the summary of the six chapters. It's an incredible verse. You've probably heard it if you've, been in, if you've ever been in another Easter service. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about this verse. I'm going to tease them out because you can't miss this summary. It's the summary of a very, very tough legal document. You know when you're sitting in, like when you're going to buy a house and you sit down and somebody explains to you, uh, don't read this whole page, let me tell you what it means. 623 is the explanation of the legal jargon of salvation that Paul has just spent six chapters explaining. It's a great summary. First thing that happens here is he connects death to sin. It's not natural. It's not the cycle of life. It's connected to sin. And it's the wages we've all earned. Sin earned us death. Death is a horrific price to pay. It took Paul six solid, I mean, deep chapters to explain just how bad the rebellion was that made death the price. Chapter 1, he says, you were created by God. And then comes this catastrophic spiritual, moral, relational rebellion out of your heart where you tried to usurp God. You worshiped anything but him, everything he made but not him. And death puts you back in your place. It's what you are without him, dead, lifeless. Sin is when you put yourself where God deserves to be. And when you do that, that very sin 
that you just elevated ravages and ruins your life and the world. So death is the supernatural consequence of substituting ourselves for God. And Romans 3.23, in case you're sitting there going, well, I don't think I'm as bad as everybody else. Romans 3.23, what does it say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. No one's on the way up. No one's on the rise. That's the idea in this text. Now, I know, I know you're better than a lot of people out there. I know you are. You're a better driver. You always and you never. I get it. You could make a case. You never trouble. You never have trouble with your HOA. Uh... You've never worn an Eagles jersey. Okay, you feel really good about yourself. Or maybe you shop at Aldi's. Everyone who shops at Aldi's feels better than other people. Well, look at what 319 says. For anyone who's got something to say to the fact that they're a sinner. So that every mouth, this is how Paul sums up three may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You are better than a lot of people. Let's face it. But before God, you fall short. That's the only thing that matters. So it turns out you really have two problems. If we go back to Romans 6, 23. You got a sin problem and you have a death problem. And like a good legal document, you would expect to say, Paul explains in detail how guilty you are before God and that you can't solve either one of these problems by yourself. Well, that's not just a problem for you. Paul, in this legal jargon, makes it clear it's a problem for God, too. Because how's he going to solve the sin and death problem? On the one hand, if he's just and we would all say God is just, then he has to crush us. But if he's loving, he can't crush us. God's problem. How are you going to be loving and just? And by the way, in the middle of chapter 3, from 21 to 26, Paul gets right into that problem. I know. If you look at this closely and you see how bad the sin problem is, you go, God, you're the one with the really big problem because you can't solve it with just justice and you can't solve it with just love. You cannot let us off the hook. No one wants anybody to be left off the hook if they've blown it. Not seriously. I read an article recently and the title of it, I, think, I can't remember where it was at, but we don't think we can hold Putin accountable for some of his crimes. Well, I got to tell you, anybody, anybody okay with that? I didn't think so. Well, God can't be okay with it either. We'd point a finger at him. Oh, you're going to let just people off the hook. Oh, no, you can't just do that. You're a just God. You got to crush him. Oh, but then you're loving to God, so you can't crush him. Now we got God in a corner. Paul has teased this out to the point where we go, it looks like God has the problem. Hey, maybe, we're gonna, maybe we can get out of this. Eh, nope. God comes up with a way to satisfy his justice and his love. To satisfy his justice and demonstrate 
his love. That's what Romans 6.23 is saying. Uh, the free gift of God is eternal life. How did he pull that off? How did he give us something free? Does that mean he left his justice behind and let love win the day? Because everybody wants love to win the day. No, can't do that if you're God. So death pays the price for your sin and demonstrates God's love. Well, actually, his justice. Christ's death. God, it was a God-sized problem. Only God can solve it. So God went to the cross himself to pay a price. He was the sinless lamb. He paid the price. And then he rose from the dead to defeat death solved both our problems in one thing and didn't lose his character at all in doing it. Phenomenal. Sin is when you substitute yourself for God. Salvation is him substituting himself for you. That's why Romans 4.25, the great faith chapter. You got to read it. It's how you get it. It's faith. You got to have faith, Paul says, like Abraham had. And he says, who was delivered up, Jesus, in verse 24, delivered up for our trespasses, that's the death, and raised for our justification. Paul says, I'll tell you how God did it. He had to die and rise to keep his character, to be just and loving. You say, so what do you do? What do you do with that? Well, Paul's building his case. He gets to chapter 10. And he says this. This is what he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. That is made righteous. That is, the better way to say that is... Um, Right before God. Whatever was wrong with your life has been made right by that act before God. For with the heart one believes, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's the heart and the mouth. This is a pretty profound thing, Paul says. This incredible gift of life demands only two The simple response of the heart and the mouth. You would think we'd have to go out and really earn our keep. It just becomes a heart issue and a mouth issue. The heart is the inward. That's your conviction. You're convicted in the heart. That's what faith, that's what happens when you believe. You get convicted in the heart. And when that happens, you're like, I'm desperate. I need what he's offering. The conviction comes, and immediately you're like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe I didn't see this before. And then comes the mouth. You can't help but say it. You know, once it's in here, it's going to show up here. Okay? Once it's in here, it shows up here. It's going to come out of your mouth. You can't help it. Oh, my gosh. You're going to speak. And it's not going to just be any kind of speech. It's going to be a confession. You, if you rose from the dead, you're Lord. Hey, can we all agree with that? If he rose from the dead, do you agree that he's Lord? 
Well, that's what your mouth does. Once your heart is convicted of its truth, your mouth can't help but say, he runs the show. And that's what happened in chapter one. You thought you ran it. And all of a sudden, your heart gets filled with the reality that not only did the price get paid, you now have somebody to lead your life. And you come to the place where you just fully rely on them. And all the little good things you thought were so important to you that one day you could use in a court, you know, before God, they just disappear. You don't need them anymore. And then you come to that last line in Romans 6.23. Can you take me back there, guys? Romans 6.23. Because I don't want to over, I don't want to pass it. You get a free gift. What's the gift? Let's look at it. Eternal life. Golly. Hey, listen, I don't know if those words just ring too biblical to you and maybe too ethereal and maybe just too far out there and they don't connect with the kind of culture we live in now existentially. (laughs) That's God's way of saying everything you've ever wanted. that death takes away, I put back. Everything death steals, and that's what it does. Death steals. It rips apart. It'll take your last love and rip it from your life. He's an enemy. And if death is the loss of everything, then eternal life is the restoration all of it put back together. And what I want to do in, the, in like maybe three minutes here is I want to take you to Isaiah 25 because I want you to know what this feels like. Because I want to know. If, when you say no to faith, you need to know what you're saying no to. And here's how Isaiah pictures the future. This will ring a little more. This, this will hit. This will feel a little more like, oh, okay, that makes a little more sense. I want to read it to you. I got it here, so I'm going to read it. Listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people, the guilt of sin, he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's what eternal life is. Pictured as a, let me, give me a second. Pictured as a feast, which always means joy and satisfaction. It doesn't, if I say we're going to eat, aren't you happy? If I say we're going to eat, everybody's happy. No question. It's a time of joy. And food in the scriptures always represents just satisfaction in the stomach. It represents satisfaction in the soul. And so that's why feasting is always a part of the eternal picture. Okay, so because you're sitting around a table. And when you're sitting around a table feasting, the best meals are with the people you love the most. They're the best meals. That's why tomorrow 
the Breams and the Chiafalos will all get together. And my favorite holidays are when we're together, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving and the families around because nothing makes the meal better than being with your favorite people. That's what I love about it. And, that's, and heaven, knows, heaven knows you love that. And he says this, swallow up death forever. You're going to swallow up death forever. And there's so much irony in that. I hope you hear it. Because death's appetite is never satisfied. It devours everything and everyone. But here, death is swallowed. And it's described as this veil, this covering over all the earth, death. And that's what it is. It's like a big wet blanket that just suffocates and blocks us off from all of our longings, just squelches everything. And wants you to believe what Berkman says in his book. Take all those longings and toss them out. They're not real. And then he says, I will wipe away all your tears because death is the source of all pain and sorrow. Sin and death together, source of all pain and sorrow and guilt. God says, I'm going to do away with both of those. The hurting is going to stop. The injustice is going to stop. The tears are going to stop. And the guilt will be gone. That covering will be lifted. That's what eternal life is. A deathless reality that only God can remove. You think the ozone's a problem. No, 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 no. I'm going to ask you this. (laughs) Do you sitting here tonight have that hope? Do you want it? I don't care how old you are in here. Do you want it? You don't have to live another minute in denial, and you don't have to just keep reading the self-help books to get get you closer and closer to acceptance and live in dishonesty. Paul sums up chapter 10. He says, you've heard, and the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that? Is it possible that the Spirit of God is driving home the conviction of what Jesus Christ has done and what you desperately need? Is it possible? And if it is, this is what I'd like you to do. Just bow your heads for a second. I got... Just bow your heads. And if it's possible that Jesus, the Spirit's driving the truth home right now, and you say, I want that. I want to put my faith in that then pray this with me. Say this, I see. I see what I've done. And I'm lost and helpless. But I also see what you have done for me. The infinite cost of your son's death the infinite power 
in the resurrection. Let's say exactly what Paul says. Say this, I believe you rose from the dead. I believe that you are Lord. And then say to him, I want that gift. I want that gift. And the truth is, I cannot say no. That's when you know you believe. You couldn't say no if you want to. And many people want to say no when God won't, God won't let them go. You can't say no. If that's you today, raise your hand. If that's you, I just want to see. Heads are bowed. I just want to know if today you say, that truth is in my soul. Let me see. Any hands anywhere? I see a few over here. So good to see. I'll tell you why. Because the Spirit had to do it. You couldn't. You just couldn't do it any other way. Well, this is what I want you to do. Your head's about. I understand that. Just keep them bowed. Listen, there's, there's going to be a number on the... Can we put it up? There's a number here. Uh, here's, the, here's the number right here. I want you to text the word gift to this number right here. And especially if you're going to be around here and you live here and maybe this is going to be a church that you're going to come to now, that would be just amazing. Well, we'd love to have you. We can help you with what you do with that gift. Because it's a gift that keeps on giving, by the way. Okay? Uh, I hope that before you leave, you'll tell somebody you love, somebody close to you, somebody connected to this church, or text that number if you're not connected to anybody in this church. And we'll help you. And God, while our heads are still bad, we just... Thank you for showing up. Thank you for doing in a few tonight what you've done for many of us in this room maybe years ago. Thank you for doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.